Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we're talking about Gattaca. I can't believe I missed this movie. Okay, so I have we have not talked about this at all. We've seen each other several times. And I d- refrained from asking you, did you like this movie? I loved this oh, movie. I'm so glad. I was really worried that you might not. I loved it. And more than that, my husband loved it. See? And this is why I was suddenly worried that maybe you wouldn't like it because I thought, oh, Ken's going to really like this <laughs> so movie. So that means I'm not going <laughs> to like it. Yes. I know. And that's a pretty good guess. He made a very <laughs> astute comment. He was like, how is this not playing on TNT and TVS for like ever? All the time since 1997. But I guess maybe because it was at that cusp of like maybe things changing in the early 2000s. Maybe it didn't quite, you know, become salient the way Mm -hmm. like other like Independence Day did and all of those kind of things. I don't know. But like it's really just so, so good and watchable. But there's layers Oh, there's so many layers. Layers. It's so good. I've watched this movie a bunch, a bunch of times. Have you? Yes. Well, it was on HBO when we were getting ready for our wedding. And so anytime we had, uh, you know, like in 1999, anytime we had a few hours where we were going to be doing mindless things, we made (laughs) all the decorations ourselves because we were poor, we would put on whatever it was on. And this movie was on HBO all the time in late 1998 and early 1999. So they hogged it. That's why it wasn't on cable because it was on HBO. It was on HBO. Gotcha. And we watched it a bunch of times. And every time I watched it, I was, oh, I didn't notice that. And, you know, so yeah. It's so good. I was really impressed. And what a cast. Oh my gosh. Yes. So many people. So many people. And they were so young. Oh my gosh. And my heart just broke. I was like, Oh, uh-huh. look at them. They're just uh-huh. such babies. And now we're all not babies. <laughs> like <laughs> Ethan Hawke. Oh, my gosh. As Vincent slash Jerome. Uh, local, local boy. Hometown is Austin. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So not far from where we are. His first big movie was Dead Poet Society. I loved him in Reality Bites oh, with Winona Ryder. That was so good. <laughs> that was one of my favorites. Yeah, it was really good. Um, he was in Lord of War with Nicolas Cage. And the director of this movie was Andrew Nichol. And he wrote Lord, Lord of, of War. War. So mm-hmm. that was two Andrew Nichol also wrote The Truman Show and In Time with Justin Timberlake, which he called The Bastard Child of Gattaca, <laughs> which In Time oh, was a much, yeah. much more mainstream film that he kind of pulled stuff That's right. from Gattaca because it did not do well. Oh. It had a $36 million budget and only made $12.5 million worldwide. I feel like... I feel like it was a little, I, I say ahead of its time, but that's not really what I mean. I think it was ahead of its time, but not enough. Oh, not okay. big enough yeah. as far as ahead of its time. It was a little too on the nose about <laughs> ahead of its time in a way that I think people couldn't go there. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of a guess. Well, but, it had this uh, retro futuristic sci-fi it's i can see how it was probably difficult to market a film noir 
Yes. In sci-fi. Yes. But also soft sci-fi. Like, yeah. easy to follow along sci-fi. Yeah, not like, and not yeah. space. Not completely. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is some space. <laughs> There's some space. But, There's some space. I mean, it's like, it's like ahead of its time, but it's not super fantastical. Right. It's sci-fi, but not uber weird. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's also film noir. Yes, for sure. And then we have Uma Thurman as Irene, and she was married to Ethan Hawke from 1998 to 2005, and they met on the... Oh, this is where they met. Yes, this is where they met, was working on this film, and I always loved them as a couple. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there came a point where they didn't love to be part of this couple, because they got divorced. Yeah. But, you know, they looked good together, and they always seemed like super interesting and usual. And of course, she was in Pulp Fiction and killed the Kill Bill series. Yeah. Yeah. She's done some pretty fun things. Jude Law. Oh. Jude Law. Yeah. Oh, he always made my heart go pitter-patter. Me too. The talented Mr. Ripley, AI. He was Watson and Sherlock Holmes. More recently, he's been the Pope in The Young Pope and The New Pope. And I didn't realize he was in the Harry Potter spinoff, Fantastic Beasts. I only ever saw the first one. No, I didn't know that either. And I think he was in only the very end of the first one. Oh. Yeah. So I had kind of forgotten or not realized yeah, I I remember him in Cold Mountain, oh, uh-huh. which is really good. Oh yeah, and very appropriately, Contagion. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Since we are currently recording this in a bubble, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, then we have uh, Gore Vidal, who was the director at Gattaca. and he's had lots of bit parts, but he was a really famous writer and. Interesting. He was famous. One of his main characters that he was famous for in his novels was homosexual. Like in the 50s. Very very ahead of his time. Oh my gosh. Super. I've not really read him. Have you read a lot of his stuff? I I haven't read a lot of Mm -hmm. his stuff. No, but I was like, why does the name Gore Vidal sound so familiar? <laughs> That's why. And then, of course, we have some smaller, like, people who are, you know, kind of famous. That's fun to talk about. Maya Rudolph, who mm-hmm. was on SNL for a long time, was a delivery nurse. Blair Underwood was the geneticist. Ernest Borgnine was his boss. Vincent's boss. Right, When Vincent's he was boss. cleaning... Gattaca, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was super cool. And we, you know where you've seen him from? Oh, in so much though, a, a whole bunch of stuff. But this is where everybody listening has seen him from. You all read "All Quiet on the Western Front" in middle school uh-huh. and watched the movie, oh, and, and that, that's he, where he was. That's why he looks familiar to oh. everyone in there from like their early thirties to their late forties. He was in All Quiet on the Western Front, and that's why he looks familiar to you. That's interesting. Yeah, I've seen, he's had a lot of bit parts in a lot of movies. Oh, yes. You know tons what I mean? Tons and tons so, and tons. Yeah. And yeah. there's a lot more, like Tony Shalhoub. Oh, I was just going to mention, yeah, <laughs> from Monk. He's the yeah. identity broker, which is super cool. Alan Arkin is the older detective. Mm-hmm. He's in The Kaminsky Method on Netflix. Oh, my Netflix. gosh. That is so funny. It's so good. I love that show. I love it, too. It's hysterical. Yeah. Everybody should watch that. Yes. I mean, 
Yes. I mean, it's a lot of old people jokes because they're old people. But it's like. But the, they're so relatable and. It's like, the male version of Grace and Frankie right yeah, now. And yes. so, like, absolutely, you have to watch it. It's so good. It's so good. And there's a cop on his beat, and it's Dean Norris. It's Hank Dean from, Norris. from Breaking Bad. He's that Hank. voice is unmistakable. Yes. Like the second he spoke, and then the yeah. mannerisms, and, and we were like, like ah! <laughs> it's him, it's him. It feels like Easter eggs in this movie. I mean, all over the place. All these people, it's so great. I mean, like, even Elias uh, Coteus, is that how you say it? I think so. Okay, Elias, uh, so he's in so many things, and I, one of the things that I remember him from is Fallen. He's in the beginning oh. of Fallen, which is a fabulous movie um you know but he's had a bit parts in almost every movie i've loved i don't i don't understand like this is a person who really figured out how to make a living i mean really just everywhere yeah Yeah. super fun all right let's recap this recap all right so we see a man in what looks like a shower without water just like rubbing the dickens out of himself under this eerie blue light and he steps out of it and then the interior of what looks like a shower goes up in flames. And you're like, what on God's green earth is happening here? Yeah, it's a heck of a way to start a movie. <laughs> yes. You started off confused. Yeah. And then he looks in a refrigerator and it contains bodily fluids, red blood, yellow urine, other fluids and substances. And the man straps a bag of urine to his leg. And fills a little void in a prosthetic fingertip with blood and puts it on his finger. And true to the retrofuturism aesthetic, the man drives a vintage Jaguar to an ultra-modern building. And it's titled In the Not-Too-Distant Future. Which, which was I, smart. Yes. Which was smart. Which was smart. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that explains why he's still able to have a Jaguar. Or, I'm sorry, a Jaguar. <laughs> Yes. So all these people are entering this super futuristic looking building and they stop at a little small kiosk, not dissimilar from like a card swipe at a subway terminal or something like that. And even though there's no guard and no turnstile, everybody stops, everybody does it. And it takes a little sample of blood. Yeah. A little pinch, a little poke. Just a little, a little poke. So he's working at this futuristic looking monitor with the world's oldest looking computer keyboard. (laughs) That was awesome. Uh The screen. But you know what? Government. Yeah. Well, to this day, those those computers are still there on desk. They're still using that stupid keyboard. They really are. And it sounds exactly the same. It's so funny because it really is true. It almost is like when you see an old movie and they have typewriters. That's I know. How it sounds that loud. I know it's not that loud. But, but it it, it's that, that kind of particular sound. And really governments, <laughs> you know, like government offices, they yeah. still have those things. Yeah. And it, then he pulls out this teeny tiny little vacuum cleaner. Yes. And he's like cleaning. And of course... His boss comes up to him and starts to talk to him. Over five minutes into the movie, we finally get our first dialogue. We haven't had any dialogue up to this point. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It's such good storytelling. It really was. Really good visual storytelling. Um, We learned that the man's name is Jerome 
or that's what he's being called. Right. <laughs> and he has had no errors in his flight plan for over a million keystrokes. It's pretty he's amazing. Very, very good at his job. So Jerome's going on a manned mission to Titan, the largest moon of Saturn, and leaves in a week. They did not give him a whole lot of time to plan for this. I guess they just assume if we say you're going to Titan, you're going to be excited to go to Titan. Yeah, because that's why you're here. You're (laughs) waiting on the guests. Yes. And then he does something really peculiar. He puts skin flakes into the keyboard and adds a hair into the comb in his desk drawer. Yeah. At this point, you're like... That's gross. Yeah. What? (laughs) Why? I don't know. What? See, and I I cannot remember what I thought about it (laughs) the first time I saw it. Because it's been so long since I've seen this movie. And it just seemed like, and I realized as I was watching it to prepare for this, that's peculiar. It's kind of really, really. At first, I will tell you at first. I didn't know what he was dropping in there. Oh, okay. And then I figured it out when he put the hair. Okay. And then I go, oh. Yeah. (laughs) First of all, is that even close to accurate? That's how much comes off of our hands when we type into our keyboard? And then second of all, where can I go buy one of these little vacuums that he has? (laughs) Oh, I need a little tiny vacuum. Gross. Yeah. That's why we don't have those keyboards anymore. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can remember being in college and like somebody spilled a soda or something on a keyboard. And of course, you know, it, we yeah. had no budget popping off all the keys and then having to look at another keyboard to figure out where to put the, where keys, to put back. the keys back on. <laughs> Because you didn't know it by by heart. No. I mean, like, you know it by heart. If you're just looking, you just type away. But if you start trying to think about it, you're like, like, well, I know QWERTY. Right? Like, that. we got the top line. (laughs) Yep. It's hard. You know, it's it's funny because how many times we would break things and put them back together and all that. And now, like, really, we're Mac people, right? You usually can't do that. No. You can't just bust into things and, like, fix them. Which is, I guess, kind of a downside because you can't just bust in and fix it. Yeah. But on the other hand, it doesn't break so much. Right. All right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. if it doesn't break, I don't need to get into it. There you go. Yeah. Then Jerome has to go for a substance test and the deck, the tech puts a sample into a machine of urine and um, it comes up on a screen and reads valid and the name Jerome Morrow is on there with the picture. So, and the the tech mentions that he has a son and promises to tell tell Jerome about him sometime. Yeah. Which is weird, but okay, whatever, man. We just, it's very short, but it's salient later. Jerome's really pretending not to be excited about this mission. Yeah, he's playing it cool. (laughs) But uh, pretty blonde Irene comes up behind him and uh, mentions that she notices that he watches every launch more than a dozen of them a day. Yeah. Which, so he's yeah. excited. Yeah, he's very excited. Then we learn that based on Jerome's genetics, that there was really no question that he was going to get this mission. Only this man who's going into space, he's not Jerome Morrow. So we learned he was conceived the old-fashioned way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By that, you mean in a car. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
not in a laboratory. He was a faith birth, a God child. Um, Moments after his birth, they test his blood and find he has high chances of neurological conditions, manic depression, ADD, and particularly a heart condition is a very, very high instance. Uh, He has a life expectancy of just over 30 years, and his parents start to name him Anton and then make it Vincent Anton so that his brother, who was later born normally, which is genetically engineered, uh, could have the preferred name. Right. The junior. Yeah. That was that was sad. It was gross and weird, but I mean, kind of understandable, right? <sighs> uh. <sighs> so as children, these brothers, you can tell which one's genetically engineered and which one's not. The genetically engineered one gets much taller and mm-hmm. at a younger age, and they'll play chicken out at the beach, and they will swim out as far as they can, but Anton is stronger, the genetically engineered brother. He just is. And he always beats his brother. Well, Vincent has dreamed of a career in space, but his 99% chance of a heart condition precludes this. And Vincent's father goes so far as to tell him the only way he's ever going to see the inside of a spaceship is to clean it. Whew. Vincent's own father is displaying discrimination based on genetic makeup, which they called genoism, which is illegal, but common. Illegal, but the entire system promotes it. Well, it does. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Interesting how that can work. <laughs> you can say it's equal and that you can't discriminate and then create a system that relies on that discrimination. Oh. Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> It uh, doesn't that speak to us Interesting. here 23 years later. Yep. There. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so the boys are nearly grown and Vincent beats and ultimately has to save his genetically superior brother. And this is what gives him the confidence to do everything that comes after. Right. This is the turning point for him where he realizes he's going to need to just work harder but he can do it. Yeah. He's smart enough. He's strong enough. He just needs to work really, really hard. Mm-hmm. So Vincent does start working at Gattaca. He leaves home and is making his own way. He's no longer relying on his parents who are, have uh, discrimination against him. And he's working at Gattaca, cleaning it, just like his father predicted. Yep. But while he's doing this, he's really learning how things work on the inside. So Vincent is both reading large books and exercising with him (laughs) to prepare for the next part of his journey. A man who can help him take, quote unquote, extreme measures to help him to get the genetic material that goes along with his perfect test scores. Vincent is bound and determined to realize his dreams. When the genetic elite fall on hard times, they might lend their identity to someone. So Vincent meets Jerome, who's a British guy who had an accident and is confined to a wheelchair, but because it happened overseas, it's not really known. There's no real documentation of it in the United States. So they are able to basically trade identities. Vincent's going to work and use Jerome's elite DNA to be able to get a high-paid position, and he's going to provide Jerome a nice life. 
Right, which yeah. is so interesting because the instance that an elite would fall on hard times like that shows you the discrimination because yeah. it's it, he still has the DNA, right? And yet he's in a wheelchair and therefore can't work, won't get hired or anything like that, even though that's technically illegal. But he knows he can't really make a life, even though he's still got all of this amazing DNA. Right. They still don't trust that's enough. Right. So, yeah, it's it's little, an interesting combination of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting combination. And it really kind of shows the how we want people we i say we how they wanted people to fit one box right yes you, and it wasn't enough that you fix one box you have to fit the whole box right all the check marks yeah. have to be aligned all together four, yeah all four corners better be where they're supposed to be right yeah so they fit vincent with colored contacts that correct his vision they fix his teeth they change his hair and then they uh, realize that, oh, Vincent's two inches shorter than Jerome. Uh. <laughs> and even with lifts, he can't, get away, with can't it. get away with it. So they have uh, leg lengthening surgery. During his recovery, Vincent learns to write with his right hand because no one orders Southpaws anymore. <laughs> and uh, Jerome's frustrated to have been second place. He was an elite swimmer and he was, he had all the genetic perfection and he was still second best. And it's during this time that he decides he's going to start going by Eugene. Though I don't know that they really, I mean, they hardly ever call him Eugene. Hardly. Uh, hardly at all. But he's, that's his way of saying, I'm giving my identity over to you, Vincent. You are not Vincent. You are Jerome. And so I am, I am Eugene. Eugene. So the morning of Vincent's interview at Gattaca, he's finally done all the things. He's finally gotten an interview. And we learned that Jerome's a drinker. Yeah. Um, and his samples are hot. There's more vodka in this piss than piss. <laughs> Uh, they finally find a clean one, and it's a good thing because the entire interview is just a genetic test that yep, they that's do it. from a urine sample. So Vincent is a borrowed ladder, and he's a degenerate. <laughs> <laughs> a degenerate. <laughs> and it worked. Uh, one of the directors at Gattaca was kind of coming close to discovering Vincent's true identity. Uh, but that man turns up murdered. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> And then Irene is tasked with assisting the detectives in the investigation, which really annoys her because she feels like it's going to put her further behind. Vincent tells the news of the mission and the murder to Jerome. So the, the mission's confirmed. The director dies all in one day. Yeah, it's this, like, like um, super fast. Yeah, 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 it's a thing. Yeah, yeah. Jerome's worried that they're going to find... Vincent's DNA and Vincent's worried that the mission will be in jeopardy. So they have very different concerns. Uh, Irene is clearly interested in Vincent Jerome and she snags the hair that Vincent planted in the comb at the beginning and she has it tested and it's like this casual affair. You just like walk up and have it tested. It's right. No it's so interesting. Yeah. Like you just go up and you give them a DNA sample and right. then they run it and give it back to you and say, good luck. Yeah. And she's a little dismayed at his near perfect results. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. 
So the men go to a restaurant, which I didn't really realize that Jerome left the apartment. I didn't like it, quite understand that either, it but weird. I guess he has his little places he can go. I where, guess. You know. I guess. Um, and, and Vincent's a little worried about leaving Jerome, but Jerome insists he's going to be uh, just fine and uh, confesses that the accident was actually a suicide attempt. Yeah. Yeah. It was very sad. Yeah. Uh, so during the course of the investigation of the murdered director... They find an eyelash, and it's Vincent's. And they, one of the detectives really latches onto that, that this must be our guy. And the other detective is like, this is a very sick man. And he used to be a part of the cleaning crew. What motive would he even have to kill him? He doesn't work here anymore, so far as we can tell. Right. It's so interesting, because the, the one detective is old. Yeah. And then his boss is the young guy. Yeah. And it's the old guy who's all like off on the rabbit trail with eyelash from somebody who used to work there a long time ago who likely probably doesn't have the strength to kill him if they go by his DNA and wouldn't be even maybe not alive, you know, if they go by his DNA profile and he's like off. And then the young guy is like all old school, five mile radius, canvas motive. Yeah, exactly. So it was, it's a very weird little set up there Uh you know yeah super interesting so uh vincent and irene are watching launches together and he like low-key pumps her for information (laughs) which i thought was really fun (laughs) like their whole little interaction is so weird (laughs) uh, but like really interesting and kind of endearing because they're clearly attracted to one another but he clearly needs information from her yeah i mean (laughs) Yeah. Like, clearly. But then, you know, the pickup line is, I ran your DNA. Uh-huh. Ooh, what an invasion of privacy. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> but but this is like, a, oh, you really are interested. You ran my DNA. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Oh, and yeah. then, what? <laughs> That's very strange. It is very strange. <laughs> she tells him that the DNA that they found was just some invalid. That's some invalid. They, that's what they call people who are faith birth or whatever. They're valid which is what jerome is Mm -hmm. and they're invalid which is what vincent is so he's basically genetically inferior she offers a hair yeah she yanks a hair out yeah here you can yeah i did this was maybe not cool of me to do it the way i did but here have a hair and he drops it the wind caught it yeah yeah which is interesting because when i think she says which explains why she was dismayed is that she also has a bit of a knock her yeah. dna shows that she has this small chance of a heart condition and that that small chance is within reason for gattaca to hire her but enough for them to sort of give her a glass ceiling. Yeah. Right? So she she really doesn't expect to be able to go as far. She's always trying to tread and fight, and she has to work twice as hard to get to where she is because she has this, like, chance of a heart condition. Mm-hmm. And and that's why she's like, and you're perfection, but here, if you're still interested, yeah, you can run my DNA and take a look at my flaws, and then if you're still interested, yeah. he, he drops it. Like, yeah. I don't care. Not concerned about that. Yeah. Vincent flips out about the eyelash and the fact that there's a bulletin that goes out to everybody within a radius with his face on it. And Jerome's like, nobody's going to care. They think you're 
Jerome. Yeah, they're, they're they not going to look at you that hard. And it's better that they found it in the building and not in your eye. Right, that's <laughs> true. Like, oh, that's, fair. <laughs> that's a fair assessment. So Irene and Vincent go on a date and see a 12-fingered piano pianist. <laughs> okay, would 12 fingers actually make you a better pianist? I, I, no. Okay. I mean, I have to say, like, Vincent's right. It's still how you play. Okay. You can have 12 fingers, but if you have no talent, well, good luck with that. Yeah. It's just more fingers to mess up <laughs> or more fingers to, you know, play extra notes that don't matter. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I guess if you were talented and skilled and worked at it, it might make you better, I guess. Okay. I I'm mean. Just, I just didn't know if, as somebody who plays the piano yeah. if you might have but like ever thought, man, if I just had one more finger. Actually, if my hands were just bigger. Oh, okay. This is why men are so good. At, I mean, women are great at piano too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, but I have small-ish hands. Yeah. I can't do. reach an octave the like easily. Yeah. Right? Like thumb to pinky. Uh-huh. Not easy. Yeah. Which means as I go up and down the piano, I'm always reaching for, yeah. th- for a lot of things. Anyway, um, but like men play piano with these large hands. And so they can just, it's like the piano looks smaller against them than it does me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so they just have so much more ease because everything's within, within reach, uh-huh. you know. But you so. make it look more grand. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was just curious as to yeah. whether that was. Uh, I stick with Vincent. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> Uh, there's a roadblock as they're leaving, and he narrowly gets avoided. Barely. I mean, but he's really smart about it. He like pops out his contacts, mm-hmm. and of course, his eyes aren't significantly different colored. Nobody really notices, and uh, he's smart about here do the finger because it's contaminated. His yeah. lips are contaminated because they were doing like a saliva check. Yeah, and so he kind of like. Looks uh-huh. at our, uh, looks at uh, Irene, Irene. Uh-huh. and, and, and kind of says, "It might be contaminated." <laughs> yeah, and then she she's like, "She, are you almost a little offended." You can tell, and he's like, "You don't know where those things have been." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, good, all the way around." I mean, all the way around, you pulled that off. Nice covering. So they're doing a sweep of Gattaca. The police are, and they realize that there's trash being collected and they start testing that and they find the dna of vincent in the trash because you know he's like drinking things and throwing cups away and whatnot and they start to realize there might be a borrowed ladder at gattaca and they are it's difficult for them to believe and so they insist on testing all of the white male employees from the vein they want to draw blood Um, And this is a major inconvenience because two-thirds of the workforce are white men. Right. It's like everyone. Yeah. And they, you know. Big surprise. Yeah. And he gets tipped off. He's able to figure it out. Yeah. Irene is able to tip Vincent off when they're coming back through the detectives. Again, she tips him off. Though she doesn't really know yet, but she knows that he doesn't need to be there for that. Which was, that was one of the things that was kind of an unanswered question for me. She's got some sort of suspicion about him. Yeah. You know what I mean? But this is his mission director that died. Right. And he really wants to go. And one of the things that is a subplot is that this mission director kind of doesn't 
want to go. Like right. he keeps wanting to cancel this mission. Right. So I think her suspicion starts off as, oh my gosh, you killed the mission director to make sure that the mission went on. And still she wants to see him. And still she wants to see him. So it's kind of weird. Like you can tell she's got some sort of like mm, something right here. But, but I he's like just, it. But he, <laughs> he's dangerous and oh so cute. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> So she tells him to go home that he's not feeling well. And Vincent has to call Jerome and say, hi, they're coming. Yeah. You, you have need, to be You me. have to be yourself. Or be yourself. Be yourself. Get up the stairs. And so Irene takes the young detective to their place. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm loathe to call it an apartment because it doesn't. Oh, it's, it's a mansion. It, yeah, it's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful, but I can't tell <sighs> that it's exactly separate from other residences. I can't tell. It's so weird, but gorgeous. It's beautiful. I don't care if it's weird. I would live in it. Mm-hmm. So she takes him to his apartment and... Jerome just barely makes it up the stairs, something that's hard for a uh, person in a wheelchair. Yeah. (laughs) And she does an excellent job of playing it cool when the Jerome that's sitting in the chair is not the Jerome that she works with. Right, but he's all acting like he's the Jerome that she works with and like, oh, come give Uh, me a kiss. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's all, and but she does a great job, I think. Yeah, she does. It's really interesting. The detective gets called away because they've apprehended a suspect. And surprise, surprise, it's not Vincent or Jerome. Nope. (laughs) And Vincent and Jerome share their secret with Irene and tell her that she only sees the flaws and not the possibility. Yes. And then comes the best moment of the whole movie. The best moment. And I'm sure it's a moment you don't think about because it's weird for me to think that this is the best moment in the whole movie. Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's not really, I mean, it's part of the plot, but it's not really, but this is why I love it. Um, she runs outside cause she's dismayed that he's done this and right. it's kind of a betrayal. Right. And then they have this conversation, right. And he oh. kind of tells her, you know, that you're only seeing the flaws. And in that moment, it really could have been about their relationship. It could have been about, you lied to me, or uh, it could have been him trying to get the girl and all of that. But instead, Vincent looks at her and says, nothing can hold you back. And he tells her to feel his heart and says, you can do it too. Uh-huh. You're, yeah. You can be okay, too. And he takes that moment, and instead of selfishly making it about getting the girl, he makes it about encouraging someone else who has such an apparent insecurity about their own flaws and says, I did it, you can do it, too, and encourages her, yeah. knowing that she might just leave forever. Right. But it was more important to send that kindness to her. Well, and to tell her, look at me, I'm going to Titan and my heart's 10,000 beats overdue. Right. I should have died 10,000 beats ago. But you are going to be okay. Yeah. You keep going. Like it was such a human kindness and he chose like integrity and actual just lovingness over his selfish desire to like get the girl and the movie makers let that happen and i'm so thankful because they could have just made it cheap instead they made it just another layer yes it was you're not weird for thinking it was just a beautiful moment because it's a beautiful moment it was great yeah so it turns out that gore vidal the other director 
really, really wanted this mission to happen. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who killed the director that was murdered. It was not Vincent. It was never Vincent. And uh, he wanted, he knew that there wouldn't be another chance for this launch in his lifetime. And he really wanted to see it happen. And now that there's no chance that they could cancel the launch. Now he can be very forthcoming. Yeah, he can be forthcoming because he gets to see it launch. And even if he goes to jail, whatever, he's an old guy. He's an old man, whatever. So the young detective's not done, though. He knows that Jerome is really Vincent because the young detective is... Dun-dun-dun! Anton! Anton! They go and play chicken one last time. And... To his astonishment, Vincent wins. Anton's astonished that again. He's, yeah, again that he's able to do this. And he says, he asks him how he does it. And Vincent says, I never left anything for the swim back. Yep. Which I thought was great. It was amazing. I loved that. I loved that it. That part too. Like two really like uplifting, hopeful spots pretty close together. Mm-hmm. It was great. And Vincent saves him again. Yeah. And and brings him, you brings know, him out back. of the water. Yeah. You know, and it just shows you the hard work because the detective has clearly not worked. He really relied on his genetics. Right. And, you know. Exactly. Jerome has prepared enough samples for two lifetimes and tells Vincent... I got the better end of the deal. I only lent you my body. You lent me your dream. It was really sweet. Oh, it's beautiful. So Vincent goes. He's ready to leave. And he didn't know there was a new policy to test urine one last time before Mm -hmm. a mission. And he's unprepared. Yeah, he didn't bring a little bag of urine to go on the spaceship. (laughs) No, because he didn't think he'd need it. So the tech who'd been taking his samples routinely throughout this movie is now going to tell him about his son. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's genetically engineered, but he's not all that they promised. Didn't turn out right. He didn't quite come out as they expected. And uh, he's a big fan of Vincent slash Jerome because the tech has known all along. Yeah. He figured it out right off. But like right away. Mm -hmm. But He changes the system to always read invalid Vincent's samples as valid Jerome. Yep. Which I thought was such a kindness. It was a kindness. As Vincent is launched into space, Jerome climbs into the incinerator and Jerome disappears and Vincent becomes Jerome forever. Forever. But also with a lot of work. Yeah, with a lot of work and also just a beautiful, beautiful line about how he feels sad to be leaving because he finally has something on Earth to stay for. But really, we're all made of stardust anyway, so maybe he's just going Going home. home. Oh, it was beautiful. It was. It was absolutely beautiful. beautiful. This is a great movie. It's such a good movie. You know who else liked it? Who? Roger Ebert. Of course he did. (laughs) Of course he did because he has good good taste. He's a good man. Most of the time we agree with him too. Most of the time. (laughs) The very first line is so great. This is why I love Roger Ebert. What is genetic engineering after all but preemptive plastic surgery? (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) Yep. 
He said the film's intelligent and thrilling, which is a tricky combination because it really is. And he wonders, as I did, why all perfect human societies often depict by ranks of automatons. When uh, Vincent was working as Jerome in the very beginning, you see him, it's just like rows of people working in this kind of dark room, all typing, and there are automatons. Yeah. Totally fair. And he uh, praises picking Ethan Hawke. Oh. Because he says he combines the restless dreams of a quote-unquote god child with the plausible exterior of a lab baby. Oh. <laughs> like, yeah. Because he's kind of true. It's, Ethan Hawke, if he had been a girl, would have been in all of those 90 movies, 90s movies about, you know, the ugly duckling becoming pretty. Uh-huh, That's, yeah. He has that kind of face where they, he can kind of act like a nerd and kind of dorky, yeah. but then They'd clean put, up nice, you know. Put glasses and, on him and he'd pull them off. And, oh, oh, look at yeah. you. You're beautiful. Oh. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to be back with some interesting little facts about the movie. And then all of our spots are real life. Is it true? Psychology break, all of that. Right after this quick break. Hey, guys. I'm Priscilla, host of the Crime and Hustle podcast. If you need a good true crime fix to start off your weekend, then I have got you covered. Join me every Friday as I release a new episode detailing the facts, investigation, unsolved, controversial, and mysterious circumstances of everything true crime. To start your Fridays off right, visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Crime and Hustle, and you can find Crime and Hustle everywhere you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. All right, so this movie, Gattaca was originally going to be titled The Eighth Day. So, like, there's seven days of creation, and this was, like, the eighth day of creation. Like, the genetic engineering. And it didn't get called that because there was a Belgian film that had already been released under in the U.S. under the same name. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, because that's I don't like that game. I don't like it. No, I don't, I don't really like Gattaca it either. Gattaca is way better. Okay, so do you know why they named it Gattaca? No. Oh. I don't. So there are four nucleobases that make up DNA. Oh, yeah. Guanine, that's right. adenine, thymine, and cytosine. And G-A-T-C. Yeah. Gattaca. That's, That's that makes complete sense. As soon makes, as you started saying, I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> there yeah. it is. There gotcha. it is. The retro futurism look they got because they filmed at Frank Lloyd Wright's Marin County Civic Center in San Rafael, California. I was going to say, because if you weren't going to mention it, I was going to mention <laughs> it. Because, see, I didn't know that for sure, but I'm a mid-century modern fanatic Mm -hmm. and so i was like as soon as it panned and you saw things i was like oh that's a that's a right building like Uh that's a ah." and then the furniture in their apartment right well that set okay the the black leather set that jude law sits in at Uh the top when he's being himself for the detective right that set there's actually in town a set for sale. Really? At period Modern. Mm-hmm. I'm a big, big fanatic. And Ooh. so I loved this film because Mid-Century Modern is the perfect retro-futuristic mash, and it will always be. Right. Yeah, your absolute favorite. And Gorgeous. I knew you would appreciate the aesthetic of it. I did. At least. I did. <laughs> 
So while this movie was critically acclaimed, but a box office flop, this is very interesting in the uh, Wikipedia article. It's said to have crystallized the debate over the controversial topic of human genetic engineering. The film's dystopian depiction of genoism has been cited by many bioethicists and laypeople in support of their hesitancy about or opposition to eugenics and the societal acceptance of genetic determinist ideology. Which I, I was like, fully, fully see that because it is a dystopian movie. It really is, but it's is. not presented as dystopian. No, because everybody there's not like war or famine or you know a lot of. I mean, you see some people who are destitute. The invalids are typically right destitute, but in general, it's not like there's this aftermath of some giant event Mm -hmm. it's just how things went and so it's dystopian in a lot of ways but it's presented as a little guy beats the world film noir retro no wonder it couldn't find a foothold because they didn't know how to market it because it's a bunch of different things it's a bunch of different things but because it's a bunch of different things it's really appeals to a broad range of i would say adult audiences um i think so i think i can imagine a few kids who would be very interested and appreciate it but in general yeah the layers are a little bit um although i think the layers almost are more salient now than it was then and i feel like resurgence yeah like this movie needs to come back yeah i, I wish it would yeah. Is it true? Is it true? I can't wait to hear some of this. Okay, so uh, eugenics was a huge part of the story. Now, this is somewhat, somewhat kind of true-ish. Uh, yeah. As far as like, yeah. It's shockingly common and really, really overlooked in our, particularly in the United States, in our history. So eugenics is from the Greek word meaning come into being. It is a set of beliefs and practices with an aim to improve the genetic quality of the human population. It long predates the term genetics. Plato suggested this, uh, that they like breed people to have better Better lives, so, like or better, or like uh, better societies. qualities, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That they would be, you know, more beautiful, smarter, healthier, all of the things. Modern bioethicists who advocate for a new ge- eugenics kind of characterize it as a way of enhancing individual traits. No matter what group people are members of. So they're they're saying it doesn't have to be racist, even though it was racist in the past, because it was horribly, horribly racist. Horribly in the racist. Past. Um, and I, my argument to that is now we're also we're finding another way to elevate the wealthy. Right. Yeah, because who can pay for this except people who have money? Right. And then, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's really associated with Nazi Germany a lot because this was how they started to disenfranchise the Jewish people um, and ultimately put them into concentration camps. Um, <laughs> but the Nazi eugenics program was they defended themselves at the Nuremberg trials, the people who were involved in this because they said it wasn't significantly different from eugenics programs in the U.S., 
<laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they're really like the term eugenics really got pushed away. You know, in the 80s and 90s, they started to come up with these new assisted reproductive technologies. And there's a concern that some of this might be revived a bit. That's um scary. It, it is kind of scary. Part of it is like on its surface to say, oh, hey, let's have a healthier population. Let's have a smarter population. Let's help people, you know, have more potential for certain things. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem like that horrible of a thing, but the genetic selection criteria are really based on who's in power at the time. Right. Like what's desirable. Yeah. That's exactly. what's scary. Eugenics will always be in the control of the people whose perspective is the majority and in control. And therefore they get to decide what is smart and what is beautiful and that is what's scary. When right. this is used, it's because it's to control people, which I think the film totally shows because them right. being these cogs, you know, sitting in that room and like the dystopian office space, as if there could be a worse dystopian office space, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. they're all sitting there and that's kind of the thing. They're all there genetically engineered, not so they can reach their dreams, but so that those who are in control can reach their dreams. Right. And those who want to reach their dreams inside that context sort of have to be crimey in a way to do that. Yeah. Um, but the what I thought is that Jude Law portrayed this like the, I don't know, how do you say it? The enormity of, of disappointment. Yeah. And how that is absolutely crushing. He has a silver medal, he, of which he participated one time. His first time, he gets a silver medal, and he is so crushed he wants to kill himself. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not working, people. Right, like, yeah. It's not working. Well, exactly. And the, the rise of a new form of eugenics, which of course they're going to call it other things mm -hmm. is also kind of, they're worried that it's going to push children as to be like made to order consumer products. Almost. Uh -huh. I, I mean, I can, I can't see it, but I can see it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want my kid to be bald. <laughs> it's a short step to go from bald to, oh, no, they can't have heart disease or cancer or, oh, I don't like left-handed people. It's right. harder for left-handed people. I have a lot of left-handed people in my life, including you, Me whom too. I yeah. love very, very much. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that y'all are so amazing is because you're lefties and you well, think a you. little bit different than, we do. We than do. the rest of us. And you bring such a wonderful perspective. Aww. And I would be sad if we genetically engineered that out of our lives. Right, right. The only Southpaws would be left baseball players. They'd be genetically yeah. engineering baseball players and, you uh -huh. know, and then they'd all be lefties and then it would be a unique thing to be a righty. Just to, I don't yeah, know. It's just, you know, the pendulum swings. <laughs> it's all very scary. Like, exactly. I don't know. I, I make enough mistakes in my life that maybe I should not be in control of choosing <laughs> the genetic makeup of my child. That's I feel like that is better left... To, to God. To God. Yeah, um, I, I agree. <laughs> All right. 
they said the not too distant future. <laughs> and I wondered if the not too distant future would really provide such rapid testing because it was like moments. Oh, it was like really, really quick. It was super, super fast. So the first gene human genome sequencing took 13 years. Yeah. 1990 to 2003. And it cost roughly a billion dollars. Yeah. I mean, that's not not even like hyperbole. That is like, (laughs) literally, it cost about a million dollars to sequence one human genome. (sighs) By 2013, it was down to just one or two days to sequence a human genome and a cost of about $5,000. In 2016, it was still a day or two, but it only cost a thousand bucks. And by 2017, it's about an hour and about a hundred dollars. Wow. So that, I mean, lightning fast from 1990 to 2017, it went from 13 years to an hour. Hour. And a cost of a billion dollars to a hundred bucks. Whoa. I mean, huge, huge difference. But. They might not be sequencing the whole genome. Well, that's true. They're they're <laughs> narrowing in on things that they know they want to see, right? I mean, well, there's a, there's two different ways to sequence. Okay, so you have the whole genome, which is what they spent 13 years doing, and there's the whole exome. So the uh, yeah, she's like, oh. oh, so the exome. Is, makes up, it's, they're made of, up of exons, and they make up about 1% of the total genome. But that tells all the DNA what proteins to make. And this is where any mutations or genetically inferior possibilities, they're going to reside in the exome primarily. You don't so- need to to do the entire genome to see where there might be irregularities or differences or changes. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So they're probably doing a whole exome Mm -hmm. and they've just gotten really good at it. And you can see how, how quickly we've progressed and just the fact that we know you don't have to sequence the whole genome to be able to see these things. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, in a really what, amounts to lightning speed. I mean, that is super fast. It's super, super fast. Wow. Yeah. So does urine even have DNA? <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I thought, of course it did, but uh-huh. maybe not. Well, and I was like, I didn't really think urine had that much DNA. Because, you know, when, you know, 23 and me. They never ask for a pee urine. sample. Yeah, it's always the, <laughs> it's the always cheek, a swab. cheek swab. Hmm. And um, it does contain small amounts of DNA, but not nearly as much as blood or saliva. I mean, it's trace, right? Like these these little urine tests they're doing to, to say you are who you say you are are not like sequencing things. They're really just matching. Yeah. Right? So is it enough to just like, yeah, that's you? Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. But the whole storage... Of it, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, no, because no, not really, because it degrades super, super fast. Uh So, of, I mean, all of the things that are terrifyingly possible in this movie, (laughs) (laughs) that's not one of them. That's not one of them. 
Interesting. <laughs> so Vincent um, reads and exercises with this huge book called Celestial Navigation. <laughs> it's so big and, <laughs> and it's dusty. It's just, Even though he reads it all the time. Uh-huh, it's, yeah. like, it's like big books with like ornate covers just come with dust. It yeah. creates its own dust. Like they, yeah, they like yeah. are dusty to begin with. Right, it's well, like a prestige thing. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so we assume the Celestial Navigation that he is doing is literally navigating in space. Well, we have celestial navigation, mm-hmm. but it's for the ocean. Right, like it's ships. Yeah, like you're looking at the stars to be able to navigate yourself. Right. You might be a wayfarer if you uh, have watched Moana. That's what, they would, <laughs> that's what they'd call them. So I just thought it, it I was... I thought pirates. Uh, oh, there you, there you go. <laughs> Or, That's or like crimey. master and commander far side of the oh, world yeah. or whatever, like, you know, the whole and how they map that out. I'd be lost. I'd yeah. be lost at sea. Would never <laughs> oh, make it back. Me either. I never would. Never would. Somebody else is going to have to be able to do that. But if you're interested, there's like books. I'll link to this book. Oh, yeah. Because it looks interesting. Celestial Navigation by uh, David Birch. And you can find a link to that because it's interesting on our social media. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. Or you can send us an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. So the identity broker couldn't be found in the Yellow Pages, which I thought was <laughs> quaint because I haven't had a Yellow Pages <laughs> delivered to my house in years. But... As at least as of January 2015, they did still print yellow pages. If you have a landline, (laughs) which who has a landline anymore? But if you have one, you can still get one. You can still get (sighs) printed, but you have to request them now. YP.com, yellowpages.com is still huge. It's a great site. It's it's still very informational. It's very informational if you want to. advertise on it they're really good at like indexing with all the major search engines so it was kind of interesting but the uk they the they only had one organization that printed yellow pages the u.s being as big as we are Mm -hmm. they had multiple organizations who have in the past and still do print yellow pages right um small towns here's a little yeah, yeah yeah the uk only had one and they stopped printing them in January of 2019 after 51 years. Oh, yeah. It is sad to see those things go. It is, but, you but know, it's, it's necessary. It's a waste of paper. It's a waste of paper now. <laughs> and, you know, we get that. And, you know, and now car, car seats, you know, uh-huh. in your seat, they move up now. So you don't need the yellow pages for right. short people to drive. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That was not where I thought you were going with that, but okay. You're not a short yeah, person. No, not, <laughs> not particularly, no. <laughs> Very average height. So, uh, cosmetic limb length, lengthening. Oh, 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 oh. I was like, ah, ah, ah. That's yes. just, ah. It's totally a thing. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. That for cosmetic reasons, it is often done and the international center for limb lengthening which i believe is in los angeles california 
uh, offers a bilateral simultaneous leg elongation, which is very similar to what Ethan Hawke appeared to be going through in the movie, was they did them both at the same time. Uh, it's not covered by insurance. Well, it shouldn't be. And, uh, yeah. I mean, I could see <sighs> there were some limb lengthening centers that primarily served people who had deformities of some kind. This I can understand. Right. Where this they I had bowed legs or a leg that right. was legitimately shorter. Than the other one. Than and the then other then one. It not was like, like, not yeah. like, oh, I'm misaligned and my leg is two inches shorter. No, no. Your legs are literally two inches shorter than the other one. Right. Then they, you know, deal with that. But cosmetically, you can get two inches, two to three inches taller in your thigh bone and your femur. Um, that's where they start is okay. in your femur. And then you can get an additional two to three inches in your lower leg at a separate time. You have to have two different surgeries any mm-hmm. more than that. And you're, uh, you have a lot more complications. You're more likely to break and all these things, but it's like crazy bizarre. And you got to put this like magnet motor next to your leg to make things happen. It's wild. Oh, wild. Oh, man, I can't believe that's a thing. Uh, Yeah, unfortunately. All right, psychology break. Jerome suffered under the expectation of perfection. Oh, I just, that was so fascinating to me to watch this play out because his disappointment, like, I'm just, oh, it's just a can of worms, and, you know, it meddles a little bit with you because you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, how much control do we have? But also, he, it wasn't his own fault. He was brought up into that. You're, this is not just about his expectations. No, this is about this he has to fight against being disadvantaged by the very expectations that his parents had in such a vast way. Right. Aww. Because they probably spent a whole lot of money to make yes. sure that he was just right. And then <sighs> he still came in second place. Yeah. This is like mommy and daddy issues on, on like atomic crack. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. So Paul Hewitt is a clinical psychologist at the university of British Columbia And he says he remembered a very bright young college student who was obsessed with earning an A plus in a really, really hard course that's designed to weed people out of the uh, particular major. They're made to be really, really hard. And he said by the end of the term, this student was having suicidal thoughts because he was laboring under this idea of perfection. I got the A plus, but all it did was demonstrate to me that if I was really smart, I wouldn't have had to work so hard to get it. That's ridiculous. I mean, it's so ridiculous. What has society done to that poor child? I know perfectionism is a very weird thing. I mean, it is societal in some ways, but it's also very personal. It's very connected to how you think about the world. Perfectionism you know, and I'm going to speak anecdotally a little bit, sure. less less even from like my psychology training and more of like my ministry training. Okay, is I see a lot. Um, perfectionism is so wrapped up in this binary thinking: you are right or you are wrong. Yeah, and if that's the case, there is perfect, 
and failure. Like, there's no continuum. There's and no good enough. There's no good enough because good enough is just settling or good enough. It's not, and like all the words we used to describe it are so like, oh, Lord, you know, and it's hard because to, that's not just about breaking a habit or changing your mind on this one thing. It's like down to your very core being. Do you see the world as right and wrong, you know, and if so, that's even harder. Oh, the binary. It's binary. so difficult. Binary is great for computer coding. It is yeah. not great for your health. So, and it's more common now than it used to be for people to have possibly poor relationships with the idea of perfection that uh, researchers gathered data from more than, more than 40,000 college students and had taken a psychological measure of perfectionism between 1989 and 2016. So they've studied this for a really long time. And about in 1989, about 9% of the people that they were getting responses from had high scores that socially prescribed perfectionism. But by 2016, it had doubled oh. to 18%. So it's getting worse. It's getting There's worse. There's more. <sighs> well, you know, we get busier and and things get harder as far as our demands. You know, what demands of our time that we have to do? We're yeah. a 24-7 sort of society now. Right. And I'm not advocating for everything has to close, but what I'm saying, you know, on a day or something like that. But what I'm saying is that because we're a 24-7 society, there's just all of this input the stimulus all of the time and there's nobody has any margin if you don't have margin then then your only attainable self-fulfillment is to get it all right yeah yeah and if you can't what if you can't get it right nobody can get it right perfect the first time that's why you had to put ten thousand hours into stuff Mm -hmm. to be an expert at it and even then yeah even then and you know it's funny so two things if you watch the Gilmore Girls, Rory goes through this. And it's when she drops out of Yale and then is all rebellious. And, like, she got told by one person that was a high... I mean, it was obviously a, a devastating thing. Somebody high up in the journalism world tells her she doesn't have what it takes to make it. Blah, blah, blah. Of course, that's, like, destructive to your self-esteem. And you have to work through that. But, like, then she struggles in her course. And this... She drops out of college. like, steals a yacht. She, like, yeah. has to do community service. Like... It's a nightmare, and it's all because she had this perfectionism in her. And so, when faced with the reality that she wasn't perfect, it was like poof, yeah, you know. And there's Mom Lorelai, like, I know you're I losing never, your mind. Yeah, I never told you you had to be perfect. I never told you that, you know. <laughs> so it's really a, an interesting, like, you know, for something lighthearted that deals with perfectionism. Go uh-huh. watch Gilmore Girls. Yeah, oh, that's an excellent suggestion. The other thing is Elon Musk. Oh, you've got to go follow SpaceX on YouTube. And then go watch his compilation videos of all the failures. Yes. No kidding. It will, it will brighten your day because you tend to think of like, oh, they, they're just so amazing. They're so perfect, blah, 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 blah. And then you watch the compilation of them trying to land this rocket on this like pad oh. in the ocean and like how that starts from the beginning. And it's freaking funny. And then there's one where he's on screen and like the rocket has come down. It hit the ground and then it exploded. <laughs> and he, he like looks around and goes... Huh. and walks off. Like, you know, let's do it again. 
and and obviously he's got billions and right. You know he can he do can that. Afford to but the, do it again. The point yeah. is he understands that success doesn't mean just perfectionism, or else he would have quit a long freaking time ago. Right. You know. Yeah. So, we wouldn't have it because he wouldn't have kept trying. Right. So if you want to make yourself feel better about perfectionism, <laughs> go watch the compilation of of the launch and the return of the rocket and all of its failures, awesome. which are really funny. Awesome. <laughs> Anton found his value in being better than his brother. Mm-hmm. There's an article in Psychology Today why some people think they're superior. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it's linked to optimism. Yeah. It's generally considered one of the most desirable psychological qualities. I'm an optimist. I like pride myself on being, you know, fairly like, positive and normal and maybe less so in the past year but uh (laughs) you know pandemic yeah and other stuff but it comes at a price that um you might either look naive or you may be setting yourself up for disappointment when things fail and that (laughs) You fall prey to what's called the hubris hypothesis. Optimism <laughs> is a, uh, yeah. Just yeah. great. Tell yeah. us about it. Tell okay. us about it. So that involves comparing yourself favorably and explicitly with other people. And that leads you to believe, to hold disparaging attitudes toward them because you're letting yourself think that you're superior. It's funny because optimism is generally, like you said, thought of as the positive way of thinking about it. Of course, that's the binary look at it. Right. Glass half full, glass half empty, you know, um, which we already have discussed is, you know, not enough for healthy human life. So, um, (laughs) you know, but optimism is generally thought of as like better than pessimism. And although that's sort of true in some ways, optimism has a, a big risk factor with it. You know, if you think about like people who are prisoners of war and you talk to people like that, they're generally the optimists don't make it. Yeah. Um, because when they fall, it, it's bad. Yeah. They have, they, it's bad. Um, and the optimist tends to ignore the reality in front of them in a way. Oh. Well, then maybe I'm not as much of an optimist. Well, as optimists I tend to. <laughs> Look at, not really see reality as it is for them. Okay. Right? So they tend to look at it and they pride themselves on the fact, generally, that they see the silver lining, that they see the positive in the situation. But in doing so, they've looked so hard and quickly for that thing that they've missed warning flags in other ways. So it's not like they're wrong in that they were able to see the good and the positive and all of that, but their choices weren't tempered by seeing warning flags below it. So they just fall victim to confirmation bias in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, But it tends to be more detrimental when things go wrong. Um, It is actually easier to have lower expectations and then enjoy them being better than it is to have great expectations and then deal with disappointment. Mm. The pessimists aren't wrong about that. Right. It's just, it's not great. You, realism is great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but, um, you know, so maybe I'm more an optimistic realist. Maybe so. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Real life. Real life. Ugh. So America really wants to ignore eugenics in our past. I'm going to visit, eugenics one more time but um if we do that we really we miss some valuable lessons eugenics was termed by darwin's 
half-cousin in 1883, which I didn't realize, Francis Galton. And he declared it, it was taught in schools, eugenics. Like, and at the World's Fair, they had whole exhibits on eugenics, and they preached it in churches. Oh, oh, what? What? Yeah. Creepy, right? That is creepy. Yeah. So there was a place called the Virginia Colony for the epileptic and feeble-minded, which sounds horrible. Why would you ever name your I, right. institution that? But I guess that's a thing they did like in the early 1900s. Oh, thank God for marketing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was a facility for the disabled, which seems, oh, okay, let's have a place for these people to be taken care of. Um, and it was partly to care for these vulnerable populations, but it was also partly to remove undesirable people from the gene pool by sequestering them during their fertile years, which is so problematic. In the U.S., between 1904 and 1921, a number of states passed laws permitting sterilization based on eugenics. Yes, and this this is, uh, well, yes. Yeah. So Um. they... (laughs) A technical designation based on IQ was called a middle grade moron. So that was, they would put that in your records. It's so yeah. scary. Uh, you know, and, and, and plenty of organizations have been born out of this sort of thinking and yeah. then moved past it. But they were born out of this sort of sterilization idea of let's not let, uh-huh. you know, morons. certain Middle people. grade morons have yeah. children. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes, and morons were considered kind of dangerous because they were smart enough to pass undetected and breed with their superiors. Like, what? Ugh. It's really, I mean... It's so... No wonder they want to ignore this. No uh, wonder well, this, yeah. this is something that's often ignored. Between 60 and 70,000 people were sterilized under these laws. Isn't that... Just amazing. And not by consent. No, no. Like, like, these aren't people who went, you know, I'm not too smart. I should probably keep my genes out of the gene pool, which is highly problematic on another level. But if, at least if they consented or said, this is something I want to do, I mean, it, we'd be having a different conversation about mental health and right. and, and, and all of that. But this is not by no, consent. No, this, yeah, it wasn't a choice. There were forced and coerced sterilizations, and they've never really gone away. Um, In 2013, the Center for Investigative Reporting revealed that at least 148 female prisoners in California were sterilized without proper permission between Mm. 2006 and 2010. Actually, know somebody who has a family connection to somebody who was coerced sterilization. Mm. Um, But it's one of those, like... She'd had a number of children removed from her home because of neglect, Mm -hmm. and uh, they sterilized her, but didn't tell her that the um, child protection agency was taking the baby she'd just given birth to away from her. So they told her, we'll offer you a free sterilization so that you don't have to worry about this anymore. And only after she agreed to the sterilization did they tell her, oh, by the way, you can't take your baby home. Oh, oh, that's traumatic. The baby was born addicted to drugs. I mean, it's horrible, right? I mean, yeah. I'm sure there was like I mean, so many different it. factors. I mean, but can, it's- you can see like 
you can see where people think that they're doing this wrong thing for the right reason. Right. I, I, that That is ethically just very scary, but mm-hmm. ooh. Yeah. And really, eugenics is uh, inherently racist because uh, it just is. And mm-hmm. so the, the white elite people are generally what's considered best. Best, which is a whole other ball of wax uh-huh. to talk about. But yeah. So now I'm a little more lighthearted. Uh-huh. How long does it take to get to a million keystrokes? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, good question. Yeah, I was super curious about this. So I guess like, oh, let's see. This guy did a digital citizen, did a test of uh, like a keystroke collector. And it averaged out to about... 4.2 million key presses a year for somebody who's on the computer a lot, hmm. which I was like, Oh, okay. So like three, four months. Okay. A million. Yeah. If you're on your computer a lot, which we know we Vincent are. was. Yeah. And they we are. are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but still that's, a, can you imagine going three months, never making a mistake while you're typing anything? Oh, good Lord. Good Lord. No, I mean, still very, very impressive. I mean, very, very impressive. Yeah. And you know what? This is why autocorrect exists. <laughs> although, although it's wrong, like a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's really wrong a lot. Uh, so Vincent retrained himself to write with his right hand. And it used to be really common to force lefties to write with their right hand, but it was not without its consequences. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh, they now understand. This was from a journal. They found that when they retrained children, they were more prone to stuttering that whatever the and they don't know if it's the violent methods that Mm. were often used they'd smack the kids and that caused psychological damage or if it was the active retraining itself and they tend to lean towards the active retraining a child to write with their non-dominant hand itself caused neurological problems and caused them to stutter that Weird. they used to think that lefties were just more prone to it. Wow. No, probably not. They're not probably more prone to it. It's the methods used to try and change them that cause them to stutter. That's so interesting. So I'm glad they don't do that anymore. Me too. Although yeah. although there's still a societal pressure. Yes. Because even my youngest really started off left-handed and he chose Really? To start trying to with his right hand. Not yeah. really because anybody forced him or was mean, but it was just the side eye from the yeah. teachers. Oh. It was just the, I don't know how to help you. Can I get the side eye to those teachers? Mm-hmm. Because they didn't know how to help him write better from his their left hand. They couldn't. And so they would just show him on the right hand and hope he could just translate it. And, you know, or they showed frustration with it. And so he didn't want to be a frustration or a burden. And so he just sort of switched. And I kept trying to go back, go back to your other hand. And, you know, and it's funny you mentioned that because he does not have a stutter, but he does have issues being smooth in the way he communicates. He doesn't quite stutter in the medical term, mm-hmm. but he sort of sputters a little bit in trying to get things out and how he's saying them. And it's a, it's almost like an insecurity, like he's afraid to just, just, just say it, just right. do it. And 
And I know, I'm like, mm, really? Really? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I just learned to write upside down. Oh, yeah. The, the teachers would stand on the other side of the desk and do it in right-handing. If I wanted to copy that with my left hand, I had to turn the paper upside down, and then I could do what they my did. My daughter does that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've gotten better at it now, but now you can't read my writing, so I yeah. don't think any of it helped. <laughs> uh, if you still have some uh, phone books laying around, there's all kinds of crafts you can do. <laughs> <laughs> you can make yourself a secret hidey spot. Oh, yeah. You can oh. hollow it out. And put whatever you like in there. <laughs> Treasures. Alcohol. <laughs> whatever, man. The old flask in a book thing. <laughs> you can make home decorations that look like uh, fiesta flowers. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can use it as a drummer's practice pad. Oh, well, that Which I thought that. that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have fire starter, which seems pretty on the nose to me. Yeah. Uh, wreath. You can make it in mulch. Actually, yeah, I, you can stuff. put it under mulch. I, you know, newspaper goes under under mulch and under, uh-huh. um, and it works famously well. And you yeah, don't have like to buy the, that stupid liner that's yeah, the, the weed barrier. Don't yeah. do that. Just yeah. use paper. Yeah. Uh, and then the final thing, people of color and women were a minority at Gattaca. And that tracks, unfortunately, for the space program in the United States. That is so, so disappointing. It, isn't it? Isn't it, though? They're planning on putting a person on the moon by 2024, and it'll be the next man and the first woman, because women didn't go. Well, we, yeah, we didn't go to the moon. Yeah. Gwen Shotwell is the president and chief operating officer of SpaceX, so they have a female head, which is great. Women are still an overwhelming minority among the rank and file at NASA and the wider space industry. They make up only about a third of NASA's workforce and just 28% of senior executive leadership positions. It's still, it's still the same. It's the same. It's the same. It's still heavily male and heavily white and not moving anywhere very quickly. And people want to say that this is a merit situation. And I just want to scream when people say this because merit is not the thing in question. No. Merit is necessary. And it would be necessary among an equal system as well. So nobody's saying that nobody that people aren't working hard. Nobody's saying that just because you had privilege to help you, that you had a tailwind, that you didn't still do the work. You know, um, that's not what we're saying. No. But, but there is a problem because the entire system, going back to the opportunities of the children, don't get the training. Well, maybe, maybe if you're looking at a person of color or a woman and a white male as adults, maybe the merit really is different. But why? Yes. Where did that come from? Is it merit as in natural merit or is, is a white male's resume looks a different way because they didn't have the challenges or the oppression or the lack of opportunity. And instead, they didn't just have normal. They had a, an abundance of opportunity. Not that they didn't have to work hard and not that many of them didn't overcome many, many challenges. People have overcome challenges, but it doesn't mean that you you had the same sort of lack of opportunity 
you have to go back and say, what would the merit be of people of color and women if they had been equals from the beginning yeah. of their life? Yeah. And that's what's hard because what my heart breaks for is not the two people who are up for a job now and the decision that's made. My heart breaks for the little girl who was standing there inside that adult woman yeah. who is where she is of no fault of her own, right. who did an amazing job. But she has to contend with the fact that literally she she didn't have the same opportunities in some ways. That is just... Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Crushing. Yeah. It's a really, it's a tough, tough situation. Hmm. Systematic hmm. oppression. Hmm. Systematic oppression. Interesting. All right. So next time, we have a listener request. Yeah. And it was kind of generic in the request okay just eileen warnos oh okay all yeah. right all right so all right. that we talk about her famed female serial killer mm-hmm. so there was a great movie called monster which i haven't seen oh. i know okay i, know. I mean uh, no uh, and really what we should do is we should watch monster we should because i should watch monster but I don't want to watch Monster. You don't have to watch it again. Because <laughs> you've seen but it. I've seen it, but I can't... I haven't seen it recently enough to be able to talk about it appropriately. To be able to do a good job on okay. podcast with it. Okay. So we're going to watch a documentary that's on YouTube. Crimes that shook the world. Ooh. And the episode is Angel of Death. Okay. And I don't think they're nearly as sympathetic as what monster is monster really like digs down and looks at how she was victimized in a lot of ways and how that might have influenced the ways that she behaved. Okay. Monster is great. It is super, super, super tough to watch. Mm, Okay. It's it's very triggering. If you've ever had sexual abuse, for the listener, you should know that. So if you want to watch it, I would encourage you to watch it, but know that it's a tough watch. It's an excellent movie, but I don't want to watch it again. Mm-hmm. I get it. <laughs> I get that. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do next time. Okay. So right. let us know if you've seen Monster. Do connect with us on the social media. And, you know, as always, don't forget to rate and review. It really does help us get found, and we want to get found so that we can continue to make this podcast and talk about these uh, big issues and also have a little fun with it. Yeah, you know, because before the pandemic hit, yeah. we were actually on the front page of Apple <sighs> Podcasts. And, um, you know, and then the pandemic hit, and they chose to put everything that was COVID-19 all over it. Which and, made sense. Which made sense, but it lasted a long time. And then when they kind of started going back, we didn't make it back to the front page yet. So yeah. um, so please do rate and review and share so that maybe we can make it to the front page again. Yeah. So and that, and you so know. more people can find out because it, it will be way more fun if we all just listen together. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. We know you make a choice that we don't just come on the radio. And until next time, be safe, be kind, wash your hands. Yes. <laughs> Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum. Da, 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 da.